share and I click on that I think and I go down to that click on it can you see it yes so it's the one that if you if you copy good we got it okay so a yeah. yard good thanks Mike, it's small. If you'd like open the whole, if you open the document, we could probably see it even bigger. Great. So now I'm dependent on Frank. Of course I have to. <laughs> this is a preview. How do you open it? I don't, um... That's a preview. Hmm. Double click on the file name. Okay. Like, right? Double click it. How about the file itself? That's right there. Yeah, maybe that guy there. Still small? small but we can see it what about the Frank what about those three dots at the bottom three dots at the bottom is was maybe that will give you the option to make it larger <clears throat> where it says more you see what I'm talking about I do not there isn't anything like that on my screen I think if you simply double click on the like real quickly then it will open Acrobat. Maybe you don't have Acrobat on the computer. I don't think so. Well, it's a it's a Mac, so. Oh, I don't know nothing about Macs. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can see it, okay? Thank you. Sorry. Uh, yeah, we can see it, okay. Okay. All right. Good. And um, just out of curiosity, on Sunday mornings, you know, when you go on the web page and see the handout I provided, do you all print it off for yourselves to use for the study? Most people do that. We do. Is there a better way for me to supply a handout to you? Okay. Most people have printers at home. Okay, great. So, um, there you go. This is the handout. Let me pray for us, and I'll tell you why we're doing it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for their spiritual hunger to know you, to know your word, to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, our, our King, our Head, Lord of Lords, the precious shepherd of our souls, King and Head of this church. We pray together for Wallace, that you will protect her, you will cause her to thrive, to grow in maturity, to grow in her witness to be ever a worshiping body, singing and bringing glory and honor to our triumphant God. Fill us this morning with power by the Holy Spirit. Give us understanding, clear our minds, free us from distraction. Keep us from the one who would come and snatch the seed of the word of truth sown. Keep us from that. And use this time for our growth and grace that we might more and more enjoy our God, serve him, know him, relish him, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'll ask, uh, as I normally do, that you would go ahead and hit your mute button. And thank you so much for joining us. Don't mean to sound rude asking for the mute buttons.
but uh, we're just very great. So I can't see most of you. I have the little screen in front of me. Why are we doing a yardstick for appetites? We are about to go into Romans 8, and it's not an understatement to say that Romans 8 is a banquet. It is a feast of spiritual riches. If you kind of think about Romans as being uh, the, the pinnacle of the New Testament epistles, then Romans 8 is the Mount Himalaya, the, 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 the pinnacle of the pinnacles. And the question is, do we have an appetite for the riches that are in it? So, for example, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a summary statement of where Paul's brought us in the very beginning of the epistle. Uh, as my brother Frank McGovern is quick to say, how, when we ask him, how are you? He says, far better than I deserve. So there's an acute sense of living by mercy and grace. This verse is, is stunning in what it declares. This good news, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So what I would like to do this morning with you is think through this idea of spiritual appetites and reflect on where Paul has brought us right up to the beginning of eight and, and, and say, look, the reality is we are all supposed to be growing spiritually and the truth is we change slowly. We change spiritually gradually. And so that raises the question, how do you, how do you assess spiritual growth? How do you assess change? One way is to look at what you have an appetite for spiritually. What do you have an appetite for spiritually? If you've been a parent, one of the telltale signs that your kids are sick is they lose their appetite. You know they're getting better when their appetite returns. And so you can begin to detect spiritual sickness in you by what you have an appetite for or what you don't have an appetite for. So I've created a little diagram here. This is just one way to do it. It's not the only way. This is a diagram that sort of traces a progression of how our appetites evolve, grow, change from being nowhere spiritually to being to the place where God wants us. And that's the last box there where you see enjoying him. I think of uh, reading in the Psalms, I think it's in the 40s where David says, I will go to God God, my exceeding joy. Now, is that true of you? Could I say that all week long, God was my exceeding joy? We live in a time and in a culture where a plethora of joys are set before us that compete with God being our exceeding joy. So there is a place God wants us to be. Don't forget your mute buttons, friends. I read in my devotions this week, Psalm 63. David says, your love is better than life. Do I believe that? Do I live that way? Is that really the sweetest thing uh, to my spiritual appetites? Okay, so that's, that's what we have. Um, you'll realize as we go through this, that as, human, as, as growing Christians, we might bop in and out of these in different ways and over time. This isn't a hard and fast. This isn't true in every case. 
So, but, but, but it gives you some indicators to test where your spiritual appetites are. And one more, uh, uh, one more advertisement for how this might be helpful. You could use this in, in evangelism. In the way, way of thinking about where people are, describing where people are in various places with respect to loving, knowing, and desiring God as you do. So hopefully this diagram helps in that way. You, you could put it this way. There are two things that have grown in my yard at our home in Virginia. A nine-inch squash and a 90-foot oak tree. When God wants to produce a squash, he takes about... 90 days. To get a 90-foot oak tree, it takes about 90 years. So here's the truth. When God makes you a towering oak, it takes time, growth, progress, process. So look at your diagram. I've supplied these little boxes for you with labels, and I'm going to give you words to put inside the box that perhaps describe a little bit more what I'm after. So the first box, deception, describes where we all start out humanly in our natural state. If you want to put something in the box there, put the word self-satisfied. We're all born naturally complacent toward the things of God, even hostile to them. And we don't know it. We simply won't move towards God. Our way seems best to us. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right in the sight of a man, and in the end it's the way of death. Given our left to ourselves, our depravity is veiled to us, and we create in our heart what I call phantom righteousness, a sense that I'm a good person. So we don't move towards God. Our way seems best to us, and our mode of living is autonomy, to be a rule unto ourselves, a law unto ourselves. And in that mode, we are naturally self-justifying, not only as it regards God, if we have any sense of who God is, we justify who we are, we're basically okay with him, and with a mode of self-justification, with respect to other people. We're naturally defensive. We are deceived to our true spiritual condition. You might call it being full, but empty. Our lives might be full of things, but the truth is we're spiritually empty. And the things we filled our lives with are masking from us this true spiritual emptiness. Okay, stage one, we all begin there. Stage two. I call it question on your handout. If you want to put something in the box, you could put spiritually empty. Something begins to happen in your life that causes you to ask questions. What's it all about, Alfie? Why am I here? Often God uses suffering to bring this to pass. He may use loss a sense that things just aren't adding up, experiencing a lack of purpose, maybe a crash marriage, a devastated relationship. This isn't the life I hoped for or dreamt about. And it gets you moving off of this place of self-satisfied deception. Maybe it was a failure. Maybe you were an optimistic person and pessimism clouded that. Perhaps you were very successful 
and it left you empty longing for more. God will use anything. And in your relationships with your neighbors and coworkers and unbelievers, you want to be circling around them as it were they're an island, finding a place to beach your boat. And if you talk long enough and listen carefully enough, people will give you beaching points of where these things may be in their lives. But you just need to get to know them, be a friend to them, listen to them, ask questions, and begin to tease out where they might be experiencing a lack of purposeness, uh, a spiritual emptiness. People, uh, by and large, are fearful, and they're lonely, and they may be experiencing rejection. So listen for these things. Obviously, the gospel is our only a sure hope to these things. So emptiness is actually a very good thing. You could put it this way. When life isn't working, perhaps God is. You should assume that in your life and in the lives of people you know. When life isn't working, perhaps God is. So we started self-deception, uh, self-satisfaction, deception. We move into a sense of spiritual emptiness. We begin to question things. Stage three, I'm calling weakness. And if you want to put something in the box, put spiritually hungry. Obviously, this stage follows naturally from the one before it. What's the difference? At this point, you really begin to experience weakness. Your props fail you. Your methods of coping begin to misfire. Um, your, the, your default mode for finding happiness, security, significance, becomes self-destructive. And it hits you afresh. My weaknesses are far too strong for me. My strengths are far too weak for me. And so you begin to conclude, oh, life isn't all about me. I must begin to take God seriously. And a new humility is born. There's an agenda in life larger than mine. And my soul is too big to be filled with all the pleasures I've sought. This is, this is experiencing spiritual hunger, weakness, you begin to realize, if you were spiritual at all, that your spirituality was essentially self-serving. You were in control of it. And thankfully, God, God, in his severe mercy, needs to bring that crashing down to find a true spirituality. Okay, that's the third box. Weakness, you experience spiritual hunger. You could, you could put it this way in, in, the, in the language of Paul. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 2. The, the power of the flesh, the, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, and the world are, are now formidable foes. You really feel their pressure. You feel their pull. Fourth stage. I'm labeling it honesty. If you want to put something in the box, you might put getting to the source. So there's a hunger for personal knowledge. Now you're convinced that life is more than matter. God made everything. He made me. And you begin to desire to know him. So no longer can you be content 
knowing about a God. It's not just theoretical. You're not content going through religious motions, and people do uh, go do, do religion ultimately to feel good about themselves. You begin to disavow yourself of that notion. You begin to realize through revelation, God must be a glorious person, and I have been indifferent to Him, and God doesn't exist to serve me. I've been created. To serve him. And since that's true, I can no longer be the one in control of my spirituality. So there's kind of a revelation. It's either God's way or a false way. And again, a severe mercy for false ways to hit roadblocks, false ways to run into the ditch, false ways to put you on your back looking up. And so in this stage, you begin to long for revelation from God about himself. Realizing I've starved my soul with my imagination's concoctions about what God is like. Now it's time to hear from God himself in his word, the Bible. Obviously, somebody who gets to this point uh, has to have some fundamental belief, trust that the Bible is in fact God speaking. So what do you realize? You, you, you realize afresh and anew with fuller weight, God must speak and reveal himself or I won't know him. I just won't know God apart from his self-disclosure. Okay? Honesty. Get to the source. Next stage. And again, let me remind you, we, we, can, we can, in our Christian lives, we can lapse in and out of these and regress and progress. And I would say we typically don't skip these stages. There's kind of a spiritual logical progression to these. These tend to build in spiritual growth. Just like if, if, if you're going to build a house, an architect gives the builder his plans, and then the builder from the plans starts at the foundation and builds up. These are, um, what I'm trying to set out here are foundational truths, foundational principles, foundational spiritual realities from which we build up. Not everyone has a Damascus Road conversion like Paul. He just kind of almost in an instant went from darkness to light just like that. Most of us change gradually. There was a tourist visiting a quaint Swiss town and he, he found uh, someone that lived there and he said, hey, were any famous people born here? And the townsperson said, nope, just babies. We're all born babies. And we grow typically in predictable uh, stages. So stage five, I'm calling conviction. And if you want to put something in the box, you could say, this is personal. As we meet God in his revelation, we realize he is a person we've harmed. God is a person we've offended. God has a heart we've grieved. God has standards we've spurned. 
And so we begin to meet ourselves in a new way. We can no longer pass off moral lapses as mistakes, judgment errors. We experience guilt. It's a good thing. Sin. In a deeper way, it's, it's a lot like those words in Psalm 51 where David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Did David sin against uh, Uriah? Of course. Did David sin against people in his court? Of course. But when he comes down to it and he's, he's under the crushing weight of his guilt, it's against you, you alone have I sinned with clear sight of God and, and a more acute apprehension of his standards. There's this sense of offending a holy God. Now, here's what's critical at this juncture in spiritual transformation. Our pride wants to stay focused on ourselves and it's, you're sort of at a juncture of going two directions, the way of humility or the way of pride. In other words, you come under conviction, you realize you weren't everything God created you to be. So part of us wants to do to compensate for what we've done. We think the right thing to do is to right our wrongs by reforming ourselves so that in the scales of morality, where we have done wrong, if I do more good, I can try to balance it out. A lot of people live that way. They find religion, and it's really an attempt to balance the scales of their performance. If I do more, if I turn over a new leaf, if I clean up my act, and we call that becoming a moralist because you're still finding a refuge in your own performance. So what's the difference between a moralist and a true spiritual minded person? A moralist repents of his sins, but is still focused on his or her own performance. The Christian repents of his or her sins and their self-righteousness. That is, any attempt to curry favor with God by what they're doing. Very critical juncture. The way of humility, the way of pride. Next stage, I'm calling it forgiveness. If you want to write something in your box, it's feeling dirty, desiring to be clean. So this is the stage where sin weighs heavily on your soul. Sin, it's more than just doing wrong or not doing enough of the right. You feel the need to be forgiven, to come clean with God. You realize sin uh, stands between you and God. And the need to be forgiven is an acknowledgement, my efforts at self-improvement cannot make me clean. Think of Psalm 130, verse 1. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? So under the burden of sin, under the weight of sin, under the acute awareness of, and of course there are three words in Hebrew for sin, iniquity, referred to pollution of heart, transgression and sin, missing the mark, overstepping the bounds, these three different words. If God marked iniquities 
and we're crushed under the, under the burden of our sin, you couldn't stand and say, accept me. God, if God marked iniquities, you would be still laid low in your guilt. So sin now is more than simply failure, uh, putting you at a disadvantage. <clears throat> it's an affront to God. It isn't just breaking the rules. It's breaking the heart of God. Because what is sin? It's living as if I know better than God. That's just folly. Who knows better than God? Look, you're born that way. We Christians continue to act that way as if we know better than God, as if we can be our own sovereign. And again, as an act of severe mercy, God may bring you into life situations where although you thought and acted like you were sovereign, he put you in a situation where you weren't in control. You had that lousy boss. You had that awful marriage. You had those rebellious kids. You couldn't control. Good. God is pushing you to the place of trusting his sovereignty, believing he's the only one that's in control. So you have a, a fresh awareness of sin that leaves your heart longing for cleansing. You think of the, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Both of them go to church. The Pharisee is standing there praying, I'm so thankful I'm not like this scum of the earth over here. I'm so thankful I'm not an adulterer, an extortioner, a blasphemer, when in fact the way he's treating this other guy, he's guilty of all of these things. That's another discussion for another day. And here's the tax collector, head bowed, a sense of his grief, can't even look up at God. And what is he doing? He's beating his breast, a symbol of self-malediction, a, 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 a symbolic gesture of saying, I deserve to be beat by a holy God. And all he can do is cry out for what? Well, the, our English translations say, have mercy on me. It's the Greek word propitiation, propitiate me. Propitiate takes us to the place of sacrifice where God propitiated the sins of his people and blood was poured right there by the high priest over the Ark of the Covenant showing God himself would be the one by his own blood making us clean. Every, every Jew throughout the history of Israel when he brought a, a sacrifice of an unblemished pure animal and that blood was shed for that animal and that animal died should say to himself, that's the death my sin deserved. And there would be a longing for a blood that would cleanse his conscience, put away from his conscience that I'm truly, really clean. Hebrews makes clear that blood couldn't do that. It all pointed forward to the blood of the God-man, our substitute, the Lord Jesus. So no wonder the New Testament calls it the precious blood of Jesus. You long for cleansing, to be free of this dirt. And of course, that's a daily practice for Christian, isn't it? We continue to confess our sins. We'll do that later in the worship service today. Most thoughtful Christians have a time, either in the morning or at the end of the day, when they just come before God, and they long for cleansing. They confess their sins. You know that lovely, um, that lovely prayer acrostic? Uh, adoration, acts, adoration, confessing, thanksgiving, supplication. It's a wonderful pattern. For, for prayer, you start with adoration, telling God who he is. Then you confess. You thank him for forgiveness. Thank him for your redemption. Thank him for your blessings. And then you ask him for the things that you need. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving. This is a part of our daily lives. Stage seven, 
hunger for righteousness. So underneath the box, I put righteousness. If you want to put something in the box, it's the need for another. Begin to look outside yourself. What do I mean? The sweetness of forgiveness and consciousness of sin's odiousness produce a desire to be more like Christ. So you become a Christian, you begin to grow as a Christian, you read about Jesus in the Gospels, the Holy Spirit has a way of giving you an attraction to Jesus, a desire to be like Jesus, and the more you see Jesus, the more you realize what? I'm not that. <laughs> he, in his pure humanity, <laughs> makes me look like a complete failure. I am not Jesus. And so who will plead my case before a holy God? Who will represent me in perfect righteousness before a holy God? I want to go to heaven. I want to see God. I want to be in God's perfectly righteous space. But I can't be that on my own. Is there someone else who can live the perfect life I owe God in my place? Is there someone who has, who has absolute unwavering moral perfection that will give that to me as a gift with which I can make a claim on the presence of a holy God. Well, the gospel is, yes, it's a double imputation. Your sins to Jesus, he cleanses you of the guilt of your sin, his righteousness to you. Jesus bears the penalty of your sin on the cross. His death is sufficient to forgive you and cleanse you, but that's only half the gospel. The other half of the gospel is he imputes to you his perfect record. So about a month ago, I received in the mail a letter from someone I don't know. He lives in the next town over. Turns out he's a Jehovah's Witness. And he probably, just as an act of obedience, started going down a directory and sending out letters to different people that live near him. So it sat on my kitchen table for a few weeks, and I finally decided, Lord, I pray for opportunities to share the gospel. I think you put it in my mailbox. So I, uh, I wrote him a letter back and included a gospel presentation. Uh, I've written a little, many gospel, many gospel tracts. One of them was Why Jesus, and it, you know, it's got the gospel in it. So I mailed it back to him with a letter thanking him for his concern for me and saying we had much we'd agree on and would he read this. Well, I got a letter back in the mail on Friday. And uh, so predictably, he is going down two rails. He's going down the Jesus is not God rail, and he's going down the we're saved by uh Jesus and our work. So he's quoting James chapter 2. It's pretty predictable. So I get to respond back, and I will, and I'm going to ask him, what exactly did Jesus come to do for sinners? What exactly did he come to do? The gospel is he did two things. He came to live perfectly in our place, the flawless a righteous life none of us could, so that, and as God doing that, so that he can offer himself a substitute, uh, an atonement for us on the cross. And I'll ask this question. What is lacking in the perfectly right, righteous life of Jesus that we have as a gift that we could contribute anything to? The cults confuse what the reformers got. We're not saved irrespective of our work. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but not by faith, which is alone. That's what James is teaching. But if you go to Paul, Paul's teaching against legalism. James is teaching against antinomianism. 
You put them together, you have the real gospel. Anyway, little, little diatribe there. I get to share with this man that my hope is in, in nothing I do. It's all in what Jesus did. And that's the truth. That's the power. That's the gospel that changes us to be people, that recreates our hearts so that when we are then zealous to do good for the Lord. Not perfectly, but there's definitely a new uh, trajectory in our lives. So we're at states, this stage, which is righteousness. We're, we need the righteousness of another. We're looking outside of ourselves for that. We find in Jesus all that we need. He saves us from our sins, and he credits his perfect righteousness to us. Uh, that's, uh, don't forget your mute buttons, beloved. Uh, that's why it's all of grace, all of mercy, all of Christ. Next stage, I'm calling it no, and if you want to just put something in the box, just a hunger to love. So with trust in the work of Christ, our souls find rest. You go to Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation of those who in Christ Jesus. Your soul should say what? Okay, good, rest, you're at peace. See the connection between 5.1, therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Couple that to 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who Christ Jesus. Almost the same thing said in different ways. Your soul should be at rest. Jesus brings me this peace. Faith makes me believe, leads me to believe, leads me to trust that God will deal bountifully with me. Not because of me. Because of his son. God can't not love his son. God can't not, as a father, help lavish good things on his son. Parents get this. One of the privileges of being a parent, you begin to understand the love of God in an existential way. And because we're in the son, God is committed to deal bountifully with us. And so now I see my sin as a sin against love. In a sense, in a sense the sins of believers worse than the sins of unbelievers. My sins our sins against knowledge. My sins are sins against having experienced the love and the mercy of Christ. And I realized then that somehow my sin then must be motivated by a distrust in the goodness of God. A distrust that he really is who he says he is. A distrust in his love. Don't forget your mute buttons. Next stage. I'm calling it serve. And if you want to put something in the box, it's a desire to praise, to glorify, to serve the Lord. So God wants to get us to this place, but doing the right thing for the right reason. That's why I think these stages are somewhat consecutive. They build on each other. If I haven't dealt honestly with my sin and haven't embraced uh, with, uh, full, wholeheartedly the benefits of the gospel, I'm likely to still live as if God exists to serve me. Or I will serve God on my own terms. It's one of the things that plagues our hearts till the day we die, serving God on our own terms, right? So here's what often happens to a serious Christian. You get serious about God and you think, does he want me to be a missionary? But doesn't everybody kind of think that way? And, what, and some people are called to missions without a doubt. Thank God they are. And yet there's something in you that says, oh, I love you, but I'm not willing to put myself into that situation. What, what is that? 
It might mean you don't have the gift for missions and you shouldn't be a missionary, fine. It might be a way of coming to grips with, I want God to serve me, I want to serve God on my own terms. So you need to think about that. You need to let the Holy Spirit work on that. Our sins, our sins against love, against the goodness of God, and we, we want to get to the place where we're experiencing the good life, and that is the joy of serving God for the pleasure of God himself. Because we experience, we stand in awe of him. We really want to glorify him. We're not going to do it as we should in this life. And we begin to learn to fill our souls with him in a new and a deeper way. This isn't going to happen unless I carve out time just to be with the Lord. Free myself of distractions. Uh, it's just, we call it in the Christian life, quiet time. We've got to be still before the Lord. We, we are bombarded with voices, bombarded with distractions constantly. How do we really know this God except in stillness, in quiet? It's, you, know, you probably know this in your experience. So we learn to fill our souls with him. And then we come to believe what? Nothing I desire compares with you. Now, I run across that phrase twice a month because it comes up in Proverbs 3 and Proverbs 8, those words. Speak, spoken of Lady Wisdom, which is a pre-incarnation theophany of Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I come across those words at least twice a month. There's a little song that I sing to the Lord often. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. And nothing I desire compares with you. <clears throat> it's a confessional uh, it's it, uh, convicted by that because the Lord knows and I know I desire things more than the Lord. And the, the reality is nothing I desire compares with him. So, so to, to be quiet with the word of God and asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to get my heart and my soul and my mind more into that truth. Nothing I desire compares with you. <clears throat> so there's a kind of in, in this place, there's a contentment of heart, but not complacency. A resting in Jesus, a resting in the gospel, knowing that how well I do my spiritual life has nothing to do with my standing before God. It's all based on Jesus. My standing before God is right next to God in heaven, Jesus. That's where my righteousness is. That's where my salvation is. That's where my hope is. That's where my interceder is. It's right, that's how secure it is. I'm right there with him. So there's a contentment without a complacency. And we find ourselves willing to cycle back through these <coughs> different stages. And then finally, uh, I've got a box there called Enjoy. And if you want to put something in the box, a constant sifting... What is the chief end of man? It's to know God and to enjoy him forever. So now I have a test for myself on a daily, a regular basis. Am I really enjoying the Lord? Why, why not? What's competing for that? Um, I'm only going to enjoy something. I'm only going to enjoy something that I see clearly. So this is David in Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It, it takes time to roll around on the spiritual tongue and expose to all these spiritual taste buds 
the goodness of the Lord as, as revealed in his word, as sought in prayer, as, me, as mediated through, the fel, through fellowship with other Christians. We, we do this together. Again, so we get to the place where we say, I will go to God, God my exceeding joy. Or we say with Paul in Philippians 1, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Okay, so to what degree can I say that and, and really mean it and feel the weight of that? And that, that's the ultimate truth at the end of the day that captures my imagination. Well, there's a test for where my appetites are. Um, and I, I love those words. I'm convicted by those words when, when the, Paul's friends tell him not to go to Jerusalem there in Acts because he's going to get arrested. He says, I do not consider my life as dear to myself. He has this strong sense of being purchased, owned, belonging to Jesus, kept by Jesus, ruled by Jesus, directed by Jesus. I don't belong to myself. Boy, is that freedom. That spiritual health. And what that creates is a greater appetite for Jesus. So let's work with each other, feeding each other, encouraging each other, nudging each other on, setting before each other in our words, our actions, our serving one another, this feast and directing one another back to the word of truth that by it we may grow in respect to our salvation. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that your word gives us yardsticks for our spiritual appetites. Thank you that um, your Holy Spirit is quick to show us when we're not hungering for you, that we are being satisfied with uh, inferior glories. We're we're, uh, feeding our souls with things that never satisfy us. We know that about our idols. Uh, Sin just says more, 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 and it never gives up, and it leaves us feeling empty, full but empty. That's not the case with you. You're our glory. You're our life. You're our hope. We need more of you. To live is Christ. To die is gain. So I pray you'd use this, if this would be helpful for your people, uh, your precious saints, uh, my brothers and sisters in this church. Use it to encourage them. Use it to direct them to you. Use it for them to take self-examination. I think of Paul's words. I examine yourself daily to see if you're in the Lord. This is a regular uh, uh, spiritual discipline for us. And above all, you must create by your spirit an appetite for you in our hearts. Do that, we pray, that we might be satisfied with the Lord, saying your love is better than life. Nothing we desire compares with you. It's true. May we, in your mercy, be brought more and more to that place. And all of that for the glory of Jesus, who has saved us, is sanctifying us, and waits for us in his presence forever. Amen. All right, next week we start into Romans 8. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All righty. Thank you. You're welcome.